Welcome to Reformations, the Meter Center podcast. Today we welcome Professor Alice Chapman. Alice is Associate Professor of Medieval History at Grand Valley State University in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Alice, thank you. It's great to have you here. Yes, pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, we're interested in talking today about medieval history, the field of medieval history, your own research, the trends in the field. But let's start at the beginning. What led to your interest in medieval history as a field of teaching and research? Well, um, I actually went to Utah State University thinking I would hopefully join the Olympic team in shot put and discus and realized very quickly I was not going to make it. And decided I had better get going on my studying, found Latin and Greek, felt, found I loved religious history, and from there met a professor called Norm Jones and took history of Christianity and there read some texts that I thought were fascinating, including a sermon by the 12th century monk and scholar Bernard of Clairvaux. And from there, I dropped my physiology major, became a historian, and here I am. Wow. And I mean, that's quite the change from physiology, shot putting, and so on and so forth. Did did your family say, what are you doing? Or were they kind of good with this change? Did that work out? for everyone around you in your circle? Yes, well, I was always interested in religion, I suppose. So I was active there. And my love for kind of religious history was always present. Mm -hmm. And when I studied in classics, I did a classics minor, uh, classics area study certificate. And then basically, I wrote papers on things like the history of the discus, the history of the Olympics. So I tried to bring together my love of sport and my love of academics always. So in a way, it was always there in the background. Kind of fed into each other. Yes, yes. That's very cool. So um, you're particularly interested in Bernard of Clairvaux. Um, I'm not sure that everyone really has a good sense of who he was or why he mattered. Why don't you fill us in a little bit about Bernard of Clairvaux? Well, Bernard of Clairvaux, as you might imagine, is a Frenchman. He was born in the Dijon region of France to a kind of minor noble family, had a kind of career path set out, but then decided to become a monk. And in the early 12th century, uh, decided to join a religious order uh, following the rule of St. Benedict called the Cistercians. Mm -hmm. They were a relatively new order founded in 1098. And he took about 30 companions and joined this fledgling order that was just kind of getting off the ground. So he and his companions were a very nice infusion of fresh blood into that order. And he went on to found, enter there into a monastery called Cito. And from there, a few years later, founded his own monastery in a place called Clairvaux. Mm -hmm. And takes the name, therefore, Bernard of Clairvaux, where his monastic house was. He was both an abbot of that house, so the head of that particular religious house. And in the 1130s, he enters on really to the world stage um, as part of a fight over the conflict over the election of the next pope. That is, there was a disputed election between Innocent II and Anacletus II. And he takes the side of Innocent II and then spends a lot of time, although an abbot should be home looking after his monks, he spent a lot of time 
traveling Europe and being involved in international politics to establish the person he thought was the rightful pope. So he was a, a churchman on the world stage, as it were, at the time. He was also a scholar and a writer and a yes. thinker. Yeah. Um, what sort of, what were his main passions, shall we say, apart from church politics? Well, he wrote over 500 letters to people all over Europe and was part of all of the dialogues of the day. He was um, important in helping the Cistercian order grow, so he was certainly uh, a part of that. So politics, religion, and also very great spiritual writer, wrote probably his greatest um, corpus is are really collections of his sermons. Mm -hmm. Terrifically important to the history of Western Christendom. So sermons, letters, uh, we have his whole corpus because he himself, which is not typical, but he himself edited several different versions of his liturgical sermons, which we have now all as of this coming fall, we should have a full collection of all of his works translated into English, thanks to Cistercian publications. That's fantastic. And it's a good corrective, I think, especially to Protestants who think that there were no sermons, that no one ever heard sermons before the Reformation. The fact that Bernard of Clairvaux was particularly known as a preacher, I think, is, is a significant fact. Yes, he carries the title, um, basically, uh, Dr. Malouflouis, honey-tongued, because he was such a great preacher. Mm -hmm. The stories are told that when he came to town, women hid their husbands for fear that they would hear his great preaching and then want to become uh, monks and then would have to leave their wives and so <laughs> forth. So uh, that's kind of, <laughs> kind of funny. But his sermons are extremely dipped and um, really part of a kind of biblical exegesis, or they are very biblical. Right. Throughout his sermons, there can be five, six, seven allusions to biblical texts, quotes or allusions in one page. Mm -hmm. So he was not only steeped in the Bible, but it was it formed the fabric of his discourse, the fabric of his life, and the fabric of his sermons. And of course, having such a rootedness in scripture as a preacher assumes also that his audience would have known what he was referring to. In other words, there is some knowledge of the Bible among his audience because they can then make sense of what he's telling them. Right. You know, he, like probably a lot of monastic preachers, he has those sermons which are a little more sophisticated for his own brothers or his own monastic community. He also has sermons or sermon outlines and, and other types of sermons, kind of a different oral genre of sermons, which would have been preached possibly um, to a kind of less educated audience. Uh, so it's, it's really, that's interesting. So he was active in his order, he was active in the church, is it fair to think of him as a kind of reformer of his own day? Is that a, is that a valid label for him? I think that's an excellent um, title for Bernard. In fact, he was beloved by both Martin Luther and John Calvin, as well as many other reformers because of his various stances and demands about what he thought was the correct way the church ought to operate. Mm -hmm. So there is that strong urge for renewal, for change, for living up to the proper way of doing things. Yes, in fact, when his novice becomes elected Pope, Eugenius III, 
his novice um, became an abbot in his own right and then was elected pope, Bernard wrote around 1150 or so five letters collected together called books, five books on consideration advice to the pope. And he wrote all about how the pope should act, how he should be both a minister and look after the church as well as a leader. And he was very insistent that the Pope understand things that might seem quite modern to us today. He should know who's around him, who's beneath him, who's above him, and most of all, he should know himself. That's very interesting, isn't it? That's a kind of very modern notion, but Bernard, you know, you must know who you are. And, and there he said, in order to be a good leader, these things are necessary, you know. Don't decorate yourself, he says, with fine purple and gold as though you were Constantine, but live a life of the, you know, of St. Peter. Right. So he emphasized these things that in a way the reformers did, reformers of the 16th century did. Right. And they looked at Bernard's, let's say, the De Consideratione, this five books on consideration, advice to the Pope. This was um, a very important contribution to ecclesiastical reform in the Middle Ages. Absolutely. So you've had a long-standing interest in Bernard of Clairvaux. What about your current research projects? Do they still focus on Bernard or have you gone to other topics? What are you working on at the moment? Yes, well, I'm just finishing at the moment the introduction to the final piece the, of the translated sermons of Bernard. And yes, it's exciting. And these are the various sermons. So there are only um, 10 of these. And I'm finishing that as we speak. And once that introduction is written, uh, the translations are made and the edition will go forward with Cistercian publications. When that uh, is finished, uh, I'll begin my next book project, which I have decided to broaden out. That's a good question that you ask. Bernard will be part of the conversation, but really I'm going to look at the role of Christ the healer, the Christus medicus in the 12th and 13th centuries. And this may seem like a large topic, but fundamentally the thesis is simple. Mm -hmm. And so it may be entirely correct or entirely false. We'll see how I do with the book. But the idea is that spiritual sickness, what it means to be spiritually sick, fundamentally depends on how you define it. Right. So if you, if you define spiritual sickness as a lack of proper contrition for confession, mm -hmm. then of course the corrective as Christ the healer will heal that by helping you understand his passion and cross and bring you humility. If you, however, as the 13th century writers might think, spiritual sickness is a lack of virtue, then it's Christ as the virtuous uh, person who, who helps you with your spiritual life. So that's the kind of next project. The, the related aspects to that is, um, I have a couple of articles coming out now. Um, one will be on spiritual leprosy. Okay. Another will be on spiritual bloodletting, aspects that will sort of be part of this larger project. And then I have an article coming out um, in a very exciting project undertaken by Christine Helmer at Northwestern and that is Luther in the Middle Ages. Okay. And there I did the Christus Medicus, this idea of Christ the healer, in a kind of larger scope 
and gave this presentation at a conference. And this conference was on the medieval Luther. And the book that will come out of it will be published by Moore Seibeck. And um, it is going to be called Luther in the Middle Ages and the Middle Ages. And Luther and the Middle Ages demonstrates the rootedness of the Reformed tradition and Luther in medieval Europe. And that actually brings me to nicely to the next question, which is um, sometimes the periodization of history is such that we think, okay, there's the Middle Ages and then there is the Reformation and they're two separate things. Then we go from the one to the other. Uh, do you think that strict separation is valid? Are there signs of continuity you would point to? Is this a, is this periodization helpful at all? I guess that's what I'm, I'm getting at. Well, I suppose, you know, as a teacher, you say you either can lie to your students and they get it, or you tell them the truth and they're confused. Mm -hmm. So the, the, I think the point is it's, it's complicated. But I certainly, as a historian, would say there are some aspects that we can see as of change, as, say, technology or discovery of certain knowledge develops. But fundamentally, these periods are connected. They are growing from one point to another. I don't think anybody would come in and think that somehow the 70s and the 80s are completely separate in American history. But we see some aspects of laying the groundwork for change, some foreshadowing, as well as some markers looking back at certain change. So I would see the Middle Ages and the Renaissance as a period that really flows together, that they are really very connected, and that, that one doesn't and can't and cannot be understood without the other. Exactly. So I reject, in a way, these absolute distinctions between the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. And no one certainly woke up one morning and said, hey, guess what? I'm in the Renaissance. I used to be in the Middle Ages, but now I'm in the Renaissance because it's 1501. You know, that just doesn't happen, right? It's our periodization, our need for order in the past that constructs these labels and plunks them down. Yes, that's right. That's right. And we see a couple of them. You know, we see in the 14th century Petrarch saying that the world is, you know, you're surrounded by darkness and gloom, and hence this term of the Dark Ages sort of comes in. We also see, even in the 12th century, ideas that, you know, this generation is great, that they are perched on the shoulders of giants, that they can see farther and farther because of their predecessors, that they get a keen vision of, of height because they're, they're standing on the, the shoulders of a giant. So we do have these sorts of um, ideas that people living in a particular time period want to see their, their era as somehow advanced, full of light, enlightened as opposed to the past. But I don't think history is progressive like that. No. And I certainly don't think that, that one period is an absolute division with another. And I think this whole attempt to bring Luther back into the conversation of his roots as a, um, as a really a medieval figure in many ways, the fact that he was an Augustinian monk for his, when he started out and so forth. So I, I think that this is a growing movement. People are beginning to question these sort of absolute distinctions. I think it's a good thing. So are there signs of continuity you would point to if you look to the Middle Ages and then the Reformation? Are there aspects that you say, look, we need to see a continuity in this. It's not a radical break. 
Sure. I mean, I guess I would say in the larger context of things, I don't think that you can understand Luther, for example, without understanding the role of Aristotle and what he role he played in the 13th century thought of Aquinas and Bonaventure. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that we can understand in a kind of larger conceptual sense the, the Middle Ages as somehow separate from the Renaissance when we look at the emergence of and continuity of, of artistic traditions, mm -hmm. of of religious traditions and the importance, for example, that monasteries played in both um, preserving books as well as, as being the basis for the cathedral schools which developed into the medieval university. Sure. So the university system comes out of the Middle Ages and is part of continuity. The cathedrals come out of the Middle Ages and establish continuity, as do things like banking, which comes from, or at least begins in some way with the Templars, the idea of Double-entry accounting comes in with, with in the time of the Medicis and so forth. It's still used today. Mm -hmm. And things like the increase in cities and extension of trade and commerce in the 12th century, that all feeds into the kind of um, um, early period of the Renaissance. So I think those are all absolutely essential ingredients to this larger thing that is more of a soup than it is separate dishes. I think that's right. And when I look at my own field in terms of the social history of the Reformation, um, although the reformers did claim a break and did claim that they were making this eventually, that there was the Catholic over there, the Antichrist and so on, and we're looking back to the early church, in fact, they can't separate themselves up from what's gone before. So church structures, uh, there's a lot of continuity there. Guess what? You may be Protestant, but you still pay the tithe. Mm -hmm. You might pay it to the government, but you still pay your tithe. And we still have pastors, and we still ordain pastors, and we still worship on Sundays. You know, we're not, we're not reinventing the wheel. It's not a wholesale break. There's a lot of continuity that really feeds off of what had happened in the Middle Ages and builds on it rather than constructing something radically new and different. Yes, and I think even if we look at someone like Luther, I'm not a Luther scholar here, but he did have the sacraments both of baptism and Eucharist, mm -hmm. and I think early on of confession, Absolutely. if I'm not yep. uh, mistaken. Yep. Yep. And although that was de-emphasized later, still that is a very much a um, um, kind of definition of, of a kind of sacramental that is Catholic understanding of the world in a way that wasn't characteristic of Reformed theology after, mm -hmm. afterwards. So I think that's very, very interesting. That, that continuity is there. Yes. Uh -huh. um, so the field of medieval studies, like all fields, is changing somewhat. There's more and more digitized resources. There's more and more stuff available online. And yet we still have archives, we still have libraries, we still have special collections. What role do these institutions, these archives, these special collections, places like the Meter Center, for instance, what role do they play in a world where increasingly a lot of sources for historians are available online? So a place like the Meter Center, I think, is extremely valuable for scholars because you have so many different parts of historiography and texts and primary sources, secondary sources in one place on a particular topic. And as a scholar, 
while you may go to an archive in order to write up some of the things that you've discovered in the archive, you must understand how that research fits into the larger context. And a place like the Meter Center is absolutely integral to providing scholars with access to contextualize their work, mm -hmm. to help them formulate uh, ideas, to allow them access to hearing what other scholars have to say in books, as well as in the programs that you have mm -hmm. uh, for visiting scholars to be able to discuss their work. So mm -hmm. absolutely integral and essential for the exercise of academic research. And in some senses as well, in terms of seeing the actual book, we were talking about that earlier just before we started this interview, but there's something about seeing the book, the physical object of the book, yes. which can also shape how we interact with its contents. Um, just the marginalia, um, the notes that happen to be handwritten into them, yes. so on and so forth, the binding, all of these things. And the continuity is there too. A lot of our Reformation era books have bindings that are stiffened with medieval manuscripts. So you've got a nice continuity right, right there. That's right. I, when I first started out in my studies on Bernard, I wanted to see some manuscripts and I only knew uh, that my favorite picture of Bernard was the one depiction done of him in his lifetime. Mm -hmm. And I knew that it was in a window in a monastery. I'd heard that. I was just starting out. I was an undergrad. And I wanted to go and see this window. Well, I read a book, and in the note, it had in there, next to the caption underneath this picture, B-O-D-L-1-5 something something. Mm -hmm. And I said to my professor, what is B-O-D-L? And he said, well, that's a, a citation for the Bodleian. I said, what's the Bodleian? The Bodleian is the library at Oxford. And I realized then that this must have been taken from a manuscript turned into a window in this monastery. I went to, uh, eventually when I was doing my research for my PhD, went to that library, the Duke Humphreys, mm -hmm. got a chance to look at this picture mm -hmm. in this or this this manuscript um, drawing of St. Bernard mm -hmm. done in his lifetime and there it was and I never would have found that have I had I looked at some digitized version it was in a book with the caption or with the little marginalia note there and I was very happy no, and it was that picture that went on the picture of my own book so I was so happy about that oh, it's a good thing it's a good thing so uh, you chose medieval studies, medieval history. If you met a student today who said, you know what, um, Professor Chapman, I'm interested in going on in medieval studies, would you have specific recommendations for that student in terms of how to prepare, what background to develop, anything of those kinds? Well, I would. I would guess I would first off say, know what skills you're going to need for what you want to do. Mm -hmm. If you know that you fundamentally want to look at manuscripts, then you know you need to study things like paleography, which is the Latin hand script, the writing. If you want to study texts, which are maybe not manuscripts, but are editions or critical editions written in Latin, then you must have Latin. And I think for people wanting to go on in medieval studies, it really is an essential aspect, knowing your Latin. So this language skills are extremely important in medieval history. I would also say work on one-on-one -on -one with a professor if you can. Get to know him or her. Get to know how they do their research and watch what they do and 
see if you can get an independent study and work closely with them and they'll help you bring you along in the field. And then finally, I guess I would definitely say travel. Try to get some experience at um, going to different places, getting different perspectives, whether that's in this country or abroad. Travel, it's such a good teacher. And then the last thing, especially with skills, I'd say get to know how to work databases. And that's something I didn't say before with archives, but it is terrifically important. For example, I work with a Latin database without which I could not do my own work, which is the Library of Latin Texts published by Breppels in Belgium. And they have a searchable, complete database of all the Latin texts from the Vulgate through Luther. Wow. So I can do term searches, phrase searches, and then I have access to the text, to a Latin text of that writer, even if I don't have it in a book form, I can get access to it there. So those are terrifically important. So know your tools, get your skills, travel and work one-on-one. -on -one. What about conferences? So for instance, there's the Medieval Studies Conference that takes place at Kalamazoo every year. I know you go regularly. Yes. Talk to us a little bit about that conference, about the trends you've seen in that conference over the years. Well, that's a great conference. You know, every year all of the medievalists gather together in Kalamazoo, Michigan and present papers on everything from um, women's religious history, the sexuality of the comb was a recent one, to all kinds of different sorts of interpretations of certain aspects of Frederick II to Cistercian studies. So there are all kinds of different um, types of sessions. But I suppose one of the things that is the most interesting and most fun to do, that we maybe not think, we don't think to do very often, is to look at the um, proposed sessions that come, the accepted sessions that come in a book form every year. Right. And there you can see what panels are subjects of each panel, and then the presenters in those panels. And if you look, for instance, at the panels, they reflect trends. We may not think that they would, but they do. For example, after the publication of Susan Reynolds' book, um, Thiefs and Vassals, the Medieval Evidence Reinterpreted, she published that in 1994. And after that, we started to see a decline. And soon after, no panels existed with the title Feudalism. Fundamentally, her book had changed the field. We no longer use terms in the same way we did before. Mm -hmm. We can look at um, some other trends in, in medieval history. For instance, the issues between the Latin West, the Latin Christian West, and the Greek-speaking East. And those were, in the 1970s and 80s, the kind of project of bringing those two halves of the world together by people like Yaroslav Pelikan and John Mayendorf. And more recently, I suppose, a larger kind of bringing together of East and West, having to do with looking at Christianity in relation to Islam and Judaism. And there we might look at the work of Anna Safir Abulafia, who wrote on Christians and Jews in the 12th century Renaissance and Christian and Jewish relations. Mm -hmm. And Christopher Tyreman, who's looked at the Crusades not just from a religious perspective, or not just from a political one, but social, political, religious, and cultural. Mm -hmm. So that's the broader. And then finally, I think one of the biggest and most important shifts in medieval history, and it was really during my lifetime, during my 
budding career as a medievalist and that is the absolutely pivotal work of Carolyn Walker Bynum who wrote Holy Feast, Holy Fast, The Religious Significance of Food to Medieval Women. And there she looked at, I, 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 I mean, I just remember being completely blown away. Mm -hmm. I remember completely thinking, I don't understand anything about the Middle Ages. Here is the whole world of the Middle Ages opened up to me in a way that I had never had before. Mm -hmm. Issues of food and other common aspects of life brought in a center stage and not ancillary. Religious women uh, exploring the nature of what is medieval asceticism? How do you use feminist theory to shed light on issues of fasting, the body, religiosity in the Middle Ages? So that fundamental change to looking at women, women's role in medieval history, that has been been such um, a brilliant um, light that was shown on, on the Middle Ages. So I think Carolyn Walker Bynum, for me, that book was one of the most pivotal of my career. It's, it's amazing how these books can really have that effect. I think you're right. The trends in the field and the historiography are fascinating to watch, aren't they? Yeah. I mean, I know in Reformation studies, when, the, when communism fell and when the wall came down, all of a sudden, all the research that had been done for years on the peasants' war and its greater significance for class warfare and so on and so forth, just kind of disappeared. It was fascinating. It just sort of, it wasn't there anymore. And the journals that had really supported a Marxist interpretation of Reformation history, they just fizzled. Um, so there was a there was a definite change at that point, and then I think the growing diversity of the field of scholarship has also changed our fields: Reformation studies, medieval history, um, where you have different voices coming in yes. and wanting to look at the topic from a range of perspectives, not always from the you know the reformers and their writings, but also from the point of view of women, of minorities, of people of color, of of all sorts of voices that might not have had a hearing early on. Is that true in medieval studies as well, would you say? It is. I suppose this is one of the best things that's happening right now in medieval history and medieval studies in general, mm -hmm. which is that we're really attempting to make sure that the full range of voices are heard. And that is looking at issues of race and diversity in the Middle Ages and looking at uh, the the kind of range of scholarship that reflects that about the Middle Ages. And so the panels, for instance, it's been a kind of uh, important move in the past couple of years that at Kalamazoo there is a, a kind of new way of selecting panels mm -hmm. that's going to be extremely conscious about selecting panels to give people who are talking about race and gender and these sorts of very important topics their due voice in medieval history. It really is needed and it is where some of the most exciting scholarship is happening. Absolutely, and I think the whole trend of microhistory, especially in Reformation studies, has really brought that forward because the, the stories you get are unique, but they're often also the voices of those you don't otherwise hear, and that's been really valuable. Yes. So thank you so much, Alice, for your time today. It's been wonderful to have this opportunity to chat with you. Great, thanks. It's been a real pleasure. <laughs>